reading today, as you can see on the screen, is from 1 Peter 5, which you'll find on 1,224 in the Black Bible, just under the seat in front of you. Now, I'm actually going to do something a little bit different. I'm actually going to start with verse... Five. So if you just turn over the page backwards and you look at the beginning of verse 5 and look at the second sentence in that that starts with the word all. And the reason why you'll understand when we get to verse 6 and there's the word therefore. So all of you clothe yourself with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but shows favour to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because He cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the grace of God, sorry, and the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power for ever and ever. Amen. All right, hope you're doing well. My name's Scott. I'm one of the ministers here. It is super nice to be with you in church on this Palm Sunday. I'm going to pray for us very briefly, and then we're going to get into this great little passage. Heavenly Father, settle our hearts. Amen. Okay. One of the differences, I think, uh, between the way you and I might have grown up and uh, the way that our children are growing up today is that most things are just much safer now. Don't you find that? I mean, I remember when I was growing up, my parents would be fine if me and my brother and our friends played in the bush across the road from our place, even though it was full of spiders and snakes and goannas and uh, other things that were potentially very dangerous to young boys. We played armies there, we um, pretended to be the A-team from television, and I don't ever remember my mum being worried about our safety. I don't even think they made us wear shoes. As long as we were home for dinner and no one was crying because someone had been teamed up against by all the others, everything was good. We could ride our bikes around the streets, and this was the day before, in the days before helmets. And I don't mean like the days before helmets were compulsory, I mean the days before helmets were invented. 
And I remember at primary school, we would race the school bus home. My friends and I would wait on our BMXs just on the corner down from the school. And the rule was you weren't allowed to start pedaling until you saw the bus kind of pull out just a half block back. And we'd be fanging down the roads on uh, bikes that only had back brakes, which meant no brakes if the chain fell off, which it did from time to time. And I don't remember my parents ever being worried about it at all. Now, maybe they didn't know. But parents today, I, I think, seem much more, and I'm one of them, seem much more concerned about protecting their kids. I mean, when was the last time you saw a whole bunch of kids just climbing trees? I mean, we're so keen to protect our children from physical harm, we're also keen to protect them from emotional harm to the point where we don't even want them to fail at anything. And it's not just the kids, you know, we're keen to protect wildlife as well. So you can't go fishing off Shelley Beach just here because it's a protected marine area. If you catch one of these beautiful big blue groper fish, you're not going to win any prizes There won't be a photo of you with your catch in the Manly Daily unless it's a photo of you being arrested for catching one of those beautiful blue gropers. And uh, even though I wistfully rue the loss of some of the freedom from my childhood, including the freedom to fail, which I think is important, protection's a very good thing, isn't it? It really is. I mean, you, you hear wind of just the litany of horrors of child abuse by priests, and you don't think the really stringent child protection arrangements we have in place here are a hassle, you think, thank you God for them. They're not a hassle at all, they're great. And wearing a helmet when you ride a bike won't protect you against a school bus at full tilt, but it might save you from brain trauma in the case of a fall. And I'm really glad the big blue gropers will be there at Shelley Beach, protected from mad fishermen. But Child protection and environmental protection seem to feature way more prominently in our minds, even as Christians, than spiritual protection. And that's really what the last line of the Lord's Prayer impresses upon us this morning. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil or the evil one. In our last week on the Lord's Prayer today, we're going to investigate that whole topic in more detail. Having covered Three of God's concerns. First, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. The prayer moves to our concerns where we first prayed, give us today our daily bread. That's a prayer for provision. Forgive us our sins that we looked at last week. That is a prayer for forgiveness before finally landing on spiritual protection. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, which we're thinking about today. And so we're going to cover the the two kind of parts of that line separately and work out how they change our hearts, how they change our prayers and our lives, which means the first thing to think about is this idea of lead us not into temptation. And you have to say there's kind of an oddity about the wording, don't you think? I mean, firstly, because you've got the placement of that negative, not right in the middle of the sentence. You know, it's a bit like um, Yoda from Star Wars, isn't it? Lead us not into temptation, you know? It just sort of throws you a little bit, that kind of wording. But even um, you change it around to say it more straightforwardly, do not lead us into temptation, you wonder to yourself, is that saying that God is normally in the business of leading us into temptation? And unless we pray this, we're kind of entering the temptation superhighway, is that it? Are we asking him to go easy on us on that front? I mean, it's only a few chapters earlier, isn't it, where 
Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. You might think, oh, maybe it's a matter of translation, you know, because the same word in the original language covers three different words that we have, temptation, testing, and trial, which each have their own kind of nuance and connotations to us. Is that, is that part of the thing? So are we praying to be led away, to be removed from any kind of temptation, or are we praying for God's leadership so that we don't give in when we experience temptation? Is it saying, God, take me away from any point of temptation, or is it saying, when I'm at the point of temptation, Lord, help me not to give in. Let me endure the trial. Let me pass the test. Keep me from falling. And, you know, one book I read said, yeah, it's, it's talking about being Uh, protected from being tempted just as Jesus prayed in the garden of Gethsemane to be protected from his moment of trial and and another book said no 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 no. it's asking God to provide us or to provide for us so that we don't fall when we experience temptation a third book said really it's just a roundabout way of asking positively that God would lead us into righteousness and integrity and you know at this point I just think far out (laughs) How can you make a mess of all this, right? Why wouldn't you want to pray for all those things? Seriously. Lord, I don't want to be put into temptations of sin. I don't want to go into trial. I don't want to uh, go under persecution or whatever it might be. I mean, to be tempted is not a sin. Giving in is the sin. But, but surely it's still okay to ask not to be put under temptation. So in that case, you really are praying for spiritual protection. Totally legitimate thing to pray especially when we remember that Jesus himself prayed to be spared from the experience of trial and the experience of temptation there in the Garden of Gethsemane. Of course, we know that we will be tempted and we will be trialed, won't we? Uh, James chapter 1. Oops, made a mess of that. James chapter 1 says this, Consider it pure joy... When, not if, but when we face trials of many kinds. And in that case, our prayer is for the spiritual provision of grace and strength to withstand temptation. I I will be tempted to covetously look at wealth or a woman or wine, or I will be tempted to slander or envy or gossip or to have... You know, one of those uh, critical, bitter spirits or a complaining heart or a thankless heart. I'll be tempted to deny Jesus. And at that moment of temptation, it won't be outside God's sovereign hand. Just as when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, that was not outside the guidance of God. And though he's not the one doing the tempting, the truth is that he intends to use that situation as a means for me to grow, as a means for me to mature which is the only way I think you could be joyful in difficult circumstances. In other words, when temptation happens, I want to endure, I want to persevere, I don't want to fall. And in this prayer, I'm praying I, uh, that I won't fall, that I won't fail, that I won't give in, that I won't sin. Now, I know that if I do fall, fail, sin, give in, whatever, that forgiveness is on offer. I mean, it's there on the verses either side of this line of the Lord's Prayer. But I'm really saying, God, help me not to fall. Don't want to be under temptation in the first place. But when I'm under temptation, well, I don't want to fall. And I think that's what you're praying, isn't it? In this line of the Lord's Prayer. 
You know, um, brothers and sisters, each point of temptation or trial represents either an opportunity to grow, which is what God is looking for, or it represents a possibility to shrink back from God in embarrassment, disobedient shame, or even worse, with a hardened heart, which is what Satan's looking for. And that's why I think this line of the Lord's Prayer is much more important than we typically think amongst all of our concerns for environmental and physical protection. Lead us not into temptation. Let me tell you something about my family. We are all risk-averse. Don't like risk. Uh, I'm risk-averse. My uh, magically babelicious wife, Carolyn, is risk-averse. All three boys are risk-adverse. Now, that is statistically unusual because only 20% of boys are risk-averse. Uh, 80% of boys are risk-takers. Now, being risk-averse has got its downsides because it means we miss out on things because we don't give everything a go. But it's got its upsides as well, uh, especially as I look down the barrel of teaching all three of them how to drive cars in the next few years. Truth is, they weren't all always like this. So when they were much litter, lit, smaller, I, uh, I remember talking to some people for a few minutes and son number one was just throwing rocks at people's cars. Small rocks, stationary cars, very safe thing to do. Um, and so I was fine with that. But when I looked around for son number two, I couldn't see him anywhere. And then I found him 100 metres up the road, in the middle of the road, headed for the nearby highway. Now, not in a million years would son number one play near the edge of the cliff. He'd probably enjoy watching other kids play by the edge of the cliff. In fact, he'd probably watch, prefer you know, watching a YouTube video clip of other kids play near the edge of the cliff. But when he was uh, little, son number two would probably run towards the cliff, accelerating as he got closer. Very easy to blame other people, isn't it? Including God, when it comes to giving into temptation. They pushed me over the edge. I couldn't help it. It was the way I, brought, I was brought up. God, you let me. Of course, James chapter 1 also reminds us that God can neither tempt nor be tempted by evil. And 1 Corinthians 10 says that God won't let us be tempted beyond what we can bear. And so to pray, lead us into not into temptation. It's not to blame God for temptation. It's to admit that most often we're not the kid watching other kids play by the cliff. Most often we're the kid running towards it and accelerating the closer that we get. But it is to ask for God's help to be led by him rather than by our own sinful and enticing desires. We are asking God to move us away. We're asking him to keep us away from the cliff. Lead us not into temptation. So that's the first part of the line. Second part of the line says, but deliver us from evil. The first one it's phrased in the negative, lead us not. The second is phrased in the positive, deliver us. Deliver us from evil, or as it says in the church Bibles that Glynis read from, deliver us from the evil one. And grammatically, either way, or both ways, are valid ways of expressing the original language. But I actually think the way that our church Bibles express it, uh, deliver us from the evil one, is preferred. So that you could almost say, lead us not into temptation, and deliver us from the tempter. I think that's a good reading because that incident where Jesus was tempted in the wilderness by Satan, the evil one, 
is really part of the backdrop to the Lord's Prayer. But I think it's a good way of expressing it too because these days we shy away, don't we, from thinking about or believing in a personal force of evil called Satan. And we think that that's just a bit too primitive, a bit too mythological for us modern types of people. I mean, maybe the people back then would buy, would buy the whole idea of, a, of an actual devil, but come on, we're too smart for that in our age. And I agree, we are smart people. I mean, we worked out cooler, more clinical ways to be cruel to people, and we're currently working on how to drive our whole planet into extinction via climate change. I mean, well done us. The guys back then, they're not smart enough to come up with that. Do you think, um, friends, the reason why our society has jettisoned the whole idea of a personal force of evil, the evil one, the devil or Satan, is because we've only really got in mind a cartoon devil, a caricature? Is it so inconceivable, do you think, that if there's personal evil within us, which we feel every day, that produces desires that entice us. And if there's kind of institutional evil of corrupt or incompetent governments and organisations and corporations and economies that promote injustice or allow evil to flourish, if there's personal human evil within us, there's systemic structural evil without, outside of us, is it not conceivable that there might be a personal spiritual force of evil also at play? Totally conceivable, I think, that our struggle is not merely against flesh and blood, but against spiritual powers and forces too, just not cartoon spiritual forces and and cartoon devils. That does not seem ridiculous to me, to believe in an actual personal force of evil called the devil. And it was certainly not ridiculous to Jesus, who experienced his temptation firsthand. And so Jesus teaches us to pray, deliver us from the evil one. Deliver us. Well, I do hope that you have your Bibles open to 1 Peter chapter 5. And in our reading today, the Apostle Peter says, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And I think, roaring lion, that sounds kind of serious. There is a personal force of evil. He's called the devil, Satan, the evil one, our enemy, and he's on the scout for willing victims. And he devours not only by being pleased to work behind oppressive regimes and ungodly philosophies. I mean, those things don't just have human power, do they? But he's also at work through inward temptations. Did you know the name Satan actually means the accuser? The name Scott means from Scotland. Pretty creative. The name Satan means the accuser because that's what he does. He accuses and he deceives. He accuses firstly God of withholding his goodness from us and he deceives us into thinking that disobeying God will bring us the good life. Well, actually disobeying God always takes life away from us. And then when we disobey God, he accuses our hearts and he effectively says to our consciences or our spirits in those quiet moments of our lives... He says, God could not possibly love you, could he, when you've done that thing again? I mean, really. So he accuses and he deceives us inwardly and he promotes forces of evil outwardly and he is real and he is sinister and according to the Apostle Peter, entirely resistible. So have a look, uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, picking it up from verse 8. 
Um, be of sober mind or be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace will himself make you strong and firm and steadfast. So real and sinister and entirely resistible. In fact, uh, James chapter 4 verse 7 says, Resist the devil and he will flee from you. <laughs> Don't you like that? A roaring lion that will flee when resisted. And so, friends, deliverance from the evil one is not generally going to be about exorcising demons. It'll be about exercising our resistance with the help of God. And so the question you have to ask is, is how, do I how do we resist him with the help of God? Well, according to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, partly by taking responsibility for ourselves, being of sober mind, self-controlled and alert. In other words, not running towards the cliff and accelerating the closer we get and then blaming God for it. I mean, think about it. If we've prayed for God's will to be done in our lives, we've asked for our sins to be forgiven, is not this the next obvious request? Give us the strength to fight temptation and to resist Satan's caustic whispers in our ears. Give us the wisdom to know the scenarios in which we are weak. What times of the day or the night or the week when we're vulnerable? Who the people are that can be bad influences? What places are places that we ought not to tread because they inevitably lead to sin? Brothers and sisters, if you have any sense of self-awareness, you know, you know the times and the places and the people where sin flourishes, don't you? I sure do. So listen to your conscience in those times and be attentive to those nudges of the Holy Spirit and ask God to help you resist the devil and be delivered in that sense. Partly we are delivered from the evil one by remembering that whenever we are under temptation or the pressure to fold at Satan's bidding and give up, verse 9, we are not the first and only people to experience that sense of battle. It's been happening to Christians throughout the world and across the ages. I um, love nature documentaries, and um, there's this nature documentary called March of the Penguins, which is about 10 years old now, and it's about the 100-mile journey that emperor penguins take every April to get to their mating grounds, to find a mate, to have kind of penguin special cuddles, or whatever they do, and raise a little baby penguin. And the vast distances that these kind of birds just waddle to get there, and their sheer determination to raise a baby penguin amidst all the obstacles is just inspiring. I mean, if you can be inspired by a bird, this is it. Right? They drop the egg, freezes immediately. Uh, both the father and the mother nearly starve in their attempts to protect this egg and keep it warm, and they just stand there like for three months in the freezing, dark Antarctic winter. Towards the end of the cycle, the season starts to change, and they see the sun for the first time as they head towards summer. And uh, the narrator, who is Morgan Freeman, whose voiceover is just kind of as smooth as milk to chocolate, <laughs> 
He says this, he says, The light has come, but the winter is not yet over. The light has come, but the winter is not yet over. And I think that's such an apt description of the Christian life, isn't it? With the death and resurrection of Jesus, the light has come. It's come all right. But the winter of temptation and persecution is not yet over, though it will be one day when Jesus returns and Satan is destroyed finally and our hearts are perfected forever and we will be delivered for eternity. But in all the time between the resurrection of Jesus and his return, that reminds us that the devil is still prowling around. The winter is not yet over. But also why he is resistible with the help of our God Because Jesus the light has come. There is, to mix metaphors, there is a battle on. It's a spiritual battle. It is a war against things, not of flesh and blood. Which is easy to forget when we live in a peaceful country at the bottom of the world, far removed from so many of the globe's conflicts, where we are so fortunate to have places like Shelley Beach, that we need protecting from fishermen. They're the real bad guys here. So let me ask you, are you on a battle footing? I mean, what's your spiritual threat level set at? Folks, none of us are immune to temptation. None of us will sail through life without being pressed, either from within or from the outside, to give up following Jesus with all our soul. We have just these often wayward things called hearts that that by themselves bring enticement. We've got a a prowling devil looking for opportunities to accuse and deceive us into thinking that God is not good. And we have a society that even rubbishes the thought of a devil, let alone encourages us to be on guard against him. And so this line of the Lord's Prayer changes our hearts to be a little on edge, on a war footing, remembering that despite peaceful external scene circumstances, there is a spiritual reality of conflict. It's partly how we resist him. Thirdly, we listen to the wise counsel of other believers when their counsel lines up with the words of Scripture. And then fourthly, by prayer generally, but by this prayer itself. God will help us in the fight against sin and temptation, but I'm saying part of the way that he helps us is by the praying of this prayer and others like it. What I mean is that you cannot pray... Lord, lead me not into temptation. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil and then walk right into temptation. Like psychologically, you just can't do that. So actually praying the prayer answers the prayer. It actually helps you to walk away from temptation. It's no surprise that in the extraordinary passage in Ephesians 6 about the armour of God, all the pieces are basically different ways of describing salvation and the word of God and the gospel, and prayer to God and the power of the Holy Spirit. You pray this line of the prayer, and the prayer itself becomes part of the answer to the prayer, if you get what I'm saying. And I would say try it this week. You know, you find yourself in one of those moments of temptation, you're looking at a person enviously, or lustfully, or maliciously. You pray this line of the prayer, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from the evil one and I think you will look away or bite your tongue or soften your heart, run away from the cliff. In all those things, self-control, the community of Christians, local and worldwide, 
on a battle footing. The truths of scripture and spiritual wisdom and prayer itself, they are the way that we resist the devil and are delivered from evil. And the promise of 1 Peter 5 that's in your Bibles there, verse 11, and really the hope that's embedded in this line of the Lord's Prayer is that God will make us strong and firm and steadfast. And so, of course, we pray, deliver us from the evil one. Now, folks, as we finish, uh, not just for today, but our whole series on the Lord's Prayer, I think this line pushes us back to God and our dependence upon him. The disciples asked Jesus, teach us to pray, because prayer is kind of unlike other human conversations. And instead of giving them ten neat tips or seven effective habits, he gives them a 53-word prayer that begins with, Our Father. And as one writer put it, Jesus opts for the most simple of approaches, a mere turning over of our will, the handing over of the depths of all our longings to the very source of our being. When we ask for spiritual protection and spiritual deliverance, we do have to ask, but it's not before we've first adored God and before we've first acknowledged our utter dependence and our human creatureliness. And that is true of spiritual protection as much as it is true of all the things that we pray for in the Lord's Prayer. Because it is His will and His power and not our willpower that will bring about all these things. And so God, our Father, we honour you and we trust you, we love you. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. We're going to finish our time in the Lord's Prayer by saying the Lord's Prayer together. Just got it up there if you want to refer to it. And uh, I'm going to give you uh, maybe 30 seconds of quiet reflection. And then we'll all say these words together. So a few moments of quiet and then we'll finish by saying this wonderful prayer together. Let's pray this prayer together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For the kingdom, the power and the glory are yours now and forevermore. Amen. I'm going to uh, finish by singing together. This will be an offertory song as well. If you'd like to pop a Connect card in the bags as they come around. If you'd like to have prayer or a chat to someone about anything at all, there'll be people down the front that you can pray and chat with. But let's stand together and sing. Mm-hmm.